0: Have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio.
1: Square footage, meaning when you buy a home, you got 3,000 square feet, you got got 1,000 square feet, whatever. That is the most expensive space we buy. Cubic feet. That's where we start to use our vertical space Is some of the least expensive that we have. Yet, that's probably one of the most underutilized areas in
0: our homes. Do you have a question about your home, inside or out? Call Ken, the contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He wants to remind you a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. You can join us if you have a question about your home, inside or out. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com.
1: You know, home ownership is not for everyone. There are many of you listening to me right now that have been in rental housing or apartments or condos. For years and maybe decades, and depending on what environment you live in, you absolutely love it. But for those of you that are first timers looking, saying, you know, I really don't want the upkeep in many cases of a home. I do a lot of traveling. I prefer not to have a yard. We all have different lifestyles, and that's great. That's the reason all the products are available for us from single family homes to duplexes to condos and high rises. We have just a myriad of of housing types for us to be sheltered in around this nation. But I want to spend a little time talking specifically about some of the pluses and minuses when it comes to maintenance and when it comes to improvements in apartments, in condos that are being rented. Now, there are two hats that can be worn out there. One is the landlord hat, and the other is going to be the tenant or the renter's hat. And again, regardless of whether you're renting property for short term, and I've had opportunity to do that as, as family situations and travels have dictated over the years, or long term, and you just say, This is my lifestyle. I absolutely love it. That's great. But you're going to be under one of those two hats. And there are some issues that arise from time to time in renting property on both sides that can be avoided by simply spending a little bit of time on the front side. And so for those of you that are thinking about just moving into rental property saying, tired of all the maintenance, I want you to pay attention to a few of these items and take note. First, if you are coming out of a single-family home, if you're coming out of your own property, doesn't matter what type it is, you are accustomed to being able to call all the shots. You're saying, if I want to paint something, if I want to change hardware, if I want to change floor covering, you know what, I go down to the hardware store, I buy what I need, and I take care of it because that's what I want to do. The world can be considerably different when it comes to leasing or rental properties that you may occupy. The very first thing you need to do, and a lot of us don't. I know Jim gets after me sometimes. He teases me about it. I read the fine print in absolutely everything. I read the MSDS sheet, so he has good reason, I guess, to laugh at me occasionally. But you need to read every word that's in your lease. Many of us will simply sign, here's the deposit check, I'm ready to move in, I'm excited, it's a new environment for me. But I want you to sit down and read the lease in detail, just like I tell you to read any purchase contracts, agreements, if you're selling or buying a home, rather. And I want you to read all of it because you're going to find in most leases there are paragraphs or certainly sections that deal with things you can and cannot do. There are sections that deal with what the landlord is responsible for. And if you are a person or a family that that loves living in rental facilities and you have moved from one city to the next, you can't count on that last lease being the same as the current lease that you're looking at. So I want you to read through it. You're always going to look at your rental rate. You're going to look at your deposit rate. You're going to look at the lease term, whether it's one year, two years, five years, whatever it may be. Those are typical things everyone will look at. But you don't read that boilerplate or fine print that's in there. And this is where you can get in trouble. So I want you specifically to look for the sections, one, that talk about maintenance items who's responsible for maintenance items that means for example if the dishwasher goes haywire is that your baby to deal with if the AC goes out you have a bad compressor is that your problem or the landlord's problem if you happen to live in a place that has a fireplace a gas fireplace or even any other type wood burning fireplace and there's maintenance whether it's on a flue or on the gas logs whose problem is that whose expense is that if something goes haywire. Now, for those of you that are listening that are landlords and also own properties, I want you to pay attention to this as well, because if you're not having these kinds of conversations with your prospective tenants, if you don't have these things in writing, then, folks, that's what our court system deals with all day long, our disputes and disagreements because somebody didn't spell it out up front, and then there's money spent on both sides, and there's hard feelings. So I want you to open that line of communication, but it always, always, always needs to be in writing. So again, going back to the maintenance, you need to understand who's responsible for maintenance and if it's split to some extent. In many cases, the tenant, the occupant may be required to pay, let's say, a percentage of that under some home warranty systems or, or, or that apply to uh, rental properties. Uh, you may have to pay the first 50 or 75 or $100 and then the owner's homeowner warranty will kick in and pick up beyond that. So there are all kinds of variations that apply. If you don't ask, if you don't read, if you don't see it in writing, then you can assume that it's not there. So you need to ask up front if it's part of your lease negotiation. Secondly, think a little bit about remodeling. Think about the items that make that dwelling unit sort of customized, a place that you're saying, it's my home. Now, I recognize that it's a rental property, and again, this is especially important if you've come out of something, a home, duplex, whatever, that you have owned where you can make all the decisions. In many cases, and this is not uncommon, as a tenant, you are not permitted to make custom changes to a place that you are renting, meaning you may not even be able to paint the walls. If you—if the walls are an off-white and you want an accent wall that's blue or red or green, it doesn't matter, you may not be permitted to do that or you may be permitted to do so with the understanding and at your expense that it will be restored to the original color as it was when you moved in that particular location. Other things that people deal with, they like to change switch plates to decorative plates. They like to change bathroom accessories, towel bars, take down curtains, put up shower door enclosures, those type items that tend to customize a particular dwelling unit. Many of these, again, you can't do, but you need to cover that with the landlord. And landlords, you need to have this conversation with the tenants. Now, some things that are, are especially you need to pay attention to, if you want to put in a ceiling fan, you know what? That becomes a built-in. That really becomes part of that unit. Even if, if the landlord says, hey, you put it in, it's mine now. You have no right in most states to take that with you when you move because it becomes a built-in. If you're going to use, for example, your own washer and dryer, you really like the style, you need to make it known up front with the landlord that you're not using theirs, that needs to come out, and you're bringing yours in. So in every case, I want you to be careful. Just ask the question, read the lease agreement, and the landlord and tenant should always have these conversations up front. If you have some things that are special and unique to your lifestyle, whether you're staying in there for one year or you intend to be in that location for five or ten years, that's great. Just be sure you know your limits, you know what you can do, and you know that if you change carpet, you do some other items like that, you know what? You may not get a penny of it back, and that all goes towards the landlord once you move out. So be aware of these things. That's really what this is all about, and
0: enjoy your stay. And uh, also, you're probably going to have to pay a little more. I know statistics show us for those living in apartment buildings in particular, rents are increasing and increasing at a fairly dramatic rate.
1: Yeah, they're moving up more rapidly than we have seen in many, many years. And part of that is going to be the supply and demand, people out of homes, people being transferred, and frankly, The situation in the economy, a lot of people who can buy homes, even though the market's good to buy them, still are not ready to do that. They want to see a little more stability, so they're ready to rent or lease for an extended period of time.
0: Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, Ken will go one-on-one with a representative from Dow Building Systems. They've got a new test program. It's called Teeth. doesn't have anything to do with oral hygiene. Ken will tell you all about that. Plus, he's got an app for you that'll help you pick some of that distinctive artwork you'd like to put in your room. That's all coming up on this edition of Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken's here taking your calls and answering your questions about your home. Questions that are important to today's homeowners. If you'd like to join us, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can also email your questions to our website, com, Or you can call that same number I just mentioned, 800-614-2975, and leave us some questions like Mary did. Uh, Mary is from South Carolina, and she listens to our program on your hometown station, WRIX 103.1 FM.
1: Hi, my name is Mary. I listen to your show every week. And I would just had a question about when is it t- is time to change the heating and air conditioning system? Is there a age of the machinery that, you know, requires it to be changed? Or, you know, when do I know when it's time to upgrade and to replace these type of things? I mean, I understand that when a roof is leaking, it's time to repair or fix this. But what about heating and air conditioning system? I, my system is about 15 years old. And it works fine, not having any problems with it. But on the energy cost side, you know, is it time to upgrade or not? Thank you. I'll tell you, Mary, you're very astute, number one, to pay attention to equipment around the house. And we talk about that on occasion. But let me address your concern specifically, and that is the age of the HVAC system. You tell me that it's about 15 years old, and I will tell you that the typical life cycle of central heating and cooling units range between about 12 and 16 years. Now, that's a pretty broad area. I have known people that have received service from their units 20 years or a little bit longer. And that's outstanding when you're looking for the amount of time that you can run a piece of equipment without a major failure or putting a lot of money into it. But the key thing you talked about is energy efficiency for anyone that's operating HVAC systems. That's heating, ventilation, air conditioning. That's basically your package system. For that period of time, you are probably operating uh, a system that had a SEER rating of 10, maybe 11, but probably 10 and possibly even a little bit less than that, depending on the part of the country that you live in. And what that says is the energy efficiency is so much less on that unit than today's equipment when we're dealing with 14, 15, 16, 18, some of those getting into dual compressors and a good deal more money, are much more energy efficient to operate. The rule that most of us has if it's not broken, we don't fix it, or like out of sight, out of mind. And that tends to be true with our HVAC system. But the fact that you paid some attention to this, what I'm going to recommend you do is that you scout around. You have an opportunity now and obtain some prices, several things to do. One. Go ahead and get some competitive bids, at least three, on replacing that system. Look at the SEER rating, the seasonal energy efficiency rating, which is, tends to be the guideline that all equipment is purchased by, and that's part of our energy efficiency codes around the nation as well. So look at that SEER rating, and start with certainly what the minimum is in your state, which is probably going to be a 13, perhaps a 14 and then go up from there, and you keep adding. If I go to a 15, if I go to a 16, if I go to a 17, how much more does it cost? And what you'll find is that there are certain levels that it may only be one or $200, and then there's a huge jump when you get into a dual compressor. But in addition to getting those competitive bids, I also want you to talk to or go online and check out any rebates that your local power company is offering, because around the country, many uh, public power companies offer rebates It's a check back to you or a full credit to your installer. It's handled in different ways for installing energy-efficient equipment, HVAC equipment, at a certain level. They may say if you're buying a unit with a 15 SEER or higher, we'll rebate $300, $600, something along those lines. Then I also want you to be aware that this year, the federal government has reinstated they did so in january many of the tax credits that are available for certain energy efficient equipment which could also earn you tax credits of 2 300 dollars or so depending on the energy efficiency and what's going on uh, at that level with the federal government your state government in some cases will also offer tax rebates or credits for certain items so when you put all those in play It's possible, in some cases, I've seen this occur, that you could easily spend $6,000 on a new system and receive $1,500 or so back in rebates. Some manufacturers, Train is one, for example, that during certain times of the year offer manufacturer rebates directly back to the consumer because they're trying to encourage sales. So I want you to do that level of research because you don't need a system right now. But then I also want you to talk to your local power company. They'll provide you with this information on the operating cost for the equipment you have right now at a 10 or 11 SEER. They may tell you that that's going to be X for a year, and a new piece of equipment's going to be Y, and you see, hey, I'm going to save... $1,500 a year in operating costs. The power company will provide you that. So I thought this was an extremely valid question, not only for you, but for our listeners, because you don't need to purchase a system. You have time to do all this research and take advantage, if you choose to, of many of the tax credits and rebates that are available to you this year if you choose to purchase a new system. So good luck in your research. Let us know how things turn out. We appreciate your call, Mary.
0: Let's take a... uh... Email question from Ken out of Fairfax Station, Virginia. i uh, listen to our uh, program in uh, northern Virginia on WKCW, 1420 AM. And Kenny wants to know about foggy windows. How can he clean those up? Well, it's very difficult unless you absolutely have some moisture that settled on them because of fog
1: that rolled in overnight, and that's not what Ken is talking about. He says we have several windows in our house. The house is about 14 years old that he thinks have leaky seals around them and these are double-pane windows. He said they have that hazy, foggy look. He said, are there options to mitigate this besides replacing the windows? He said, I've heard of a company that injects something into the windows to seal them and clear up the haze. Well, it's good that you questioned us about this, Ken, because you are absolutely right. Now, the companies that restore these windows, that will essentially repair them. And I use that term loosely, but basically they get rid of the fog, the moisture that's on the inside, and they have means of uh, sealing those once again so that it puts it back to uh, basically the new standard and offers the insulating values that that window initially had and prevents you from having to go buy a whole new window. They do exist. They are hard to come by in most, most areas. In your part of the country, your Fairfax station, your Arlington, your the DC area, you have a better chance than many of our listeners do in other areas of finding contractors to do that. But I want to caution you, this is a fairly new technique. And it hasn't been around for 50 years, so I want you to find, if you can, at least two and hopefully three companies that will do this, and then I want you to get some references. I want you to talk to people that are hopefully their satisfied customers, and I want you to see projects that they're in the process of doing and be sure you're comfortable with it because this is still relatively expensive, but it is much more cost-effective than replacing an entire window. So that's why I want you to do the research yourself in your market and be sure that you're comfortable with it. I'll drive you to one website. The link's on mine. It's called getthefogout.com, and that is a company that was started in Canada one of the earlier ones years ago. They're franchise operations. They may be in your area, and there's some other folks there. But if they're not, what I want to tell you and other people that don't have a company that can restore this is a good way to deal with it, and that is to go to your local Glass company, your commercial glass company, take the sash out of the window. Take it down. Let them pull it apart. In most every case I have found, they can go in and either replace the glass, replace the seal around the outside, and restore that glass to its new look give you the sash back, you put it back in the opening for a fraction of the cost of a new window or ordering a new sash, especially if it's an old sash and it would be custom from the manufacturer. So you've got those options. Either one of those should take care of your needs and everybody else that has foggy windows that they want to resolve the problem.
0: We hope that helps you out. Don't forget if you do have a question about your home inside or out, there's a couple of different ways you can get your question to Ken Patterson. All you have to do is give us a call at eight hundred six one four two nine seven five. That's eight hundred six one four two nine seven five, or email your questions to the website, KenTheContractor dot com. And while you're there, check out a lot of the very valuable home improvement information that you find online. Quick break and back with more, you're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor and he's here to help you deal with the questions that are important to today's homeowner. A couple different ways that you can get your questions to Ken, you can always give us a call at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975 or email your questions to the website, Contractor. Time now for this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and, of course, save you money.
1: Joining me now is Jim Moy. Jim is the North American operations marketing manager. There are about ten other names down here. I started to read all of those, even though I shouldn't, because you say it doesn't wrap around your business card very well. But you're a man of many hats. That's correct. As we look at that, you've got one that's extremely unique, one of those many hats that we want to talk about today. You're here with Dow Building Solutions. And Dow is a company that I have known, I guess, as long as I've been in this business, which is more decades than I want to talk to people about. And I think most homeowners know Dow. If you don't, I assure you that almost all of you are living with something around your house, under your house, or on top of your house that Dow has produced that helps make it more energy efficient and keeps you comfortable. That's right. Now, with that said, you have such a unique project that I've wondered for many years when we look at energy efficiency why somebody did not tackle this. Dow has taken on an energy efficiency study of grand proportions. Tell us a little bit about what you call TEETH. That's it's right.
2: T-E-E-T-H. Tell us what that is. Well, you know, Dow, we're big into acronyms, so uh, we, we didn't want to short sell anybody on this one. So TEETH actually stands for 12 Energy Efficient Test Homes. And uh what we did, Ken is um you're right it it i at same thing I felt like there was a long long uh, there was a big gap in the industry of not doing a project like this. there was always a lot of test homes built and Concepts that were tried to be proved out, but,
1: but no um, real comparison. That's like
2: right. This. Well, you would try to compare, but you would always run into variables that people could argue. Well, I wasn't in the same climate zone, or family of five instead of family of three. Sun orientation, sun the sun orientation, windows orientation. were larger. That's exactly correct. So, what we tried to do here was eliminate that was one of the key deliverables, was eliminate those variables that people tried to throw stones at in prior projects. And so, these 12 homes are built on the same street, oriented to the sun the same way. And then what it is is it's three different houses built four different ways from an envelope perspective. So, And
1: where are these constructed?
2: Midland, Michigan, which is actually Climate Zone 5, but right on the northern edge of Climate Zone 5, almost Climate Zone 6, right right on the line of Climate Zone 5, Climate 6. Those homes are built so that we can put the baseline to the 2006 code, and then what we did is we kind of built a second house to the 2012 code, We built a third house to the 2012 code using almost all Dow solutions. That second one kind of used other solutions. And then a fourth home was built, what I call the steroid house, which was all Dow. But, you know, really if you added kind of a renewable energy source, that house would probably be net zero. So the envelopes really, really be Really tight if you're a net zero. That's right. Where are you
1: going with this? And we don't have a lot of time to get into the lengthy study, but you've told us how they've been constructed. you told us some of the variables and the similarities, and that's key so that you can evaluate these different components.
2: Yeah, we had a couple deliverables that we really wanted to get out of the project. One was the cost. So when we partnered with the local builder, even though we donated the product to him at the end or we credited him back that product, we had him buy those products, Ken, just like he normally would if he was building the house through the channel, right, through the lumber dealer channel, because we really wanted to get the actual builder cost from the baseline house to the second house to the third house to the fourth house, so we can get that true cost difference. Because you know, a lot of people think, well, you're going to make all these energy upgrades, it's going to cost me $20,000, $25,000 to do that. Well, what we found out was that was not the case. So that was one of the key deliverables getting that cost data out of it from house to house. Second thing we wanted to get out was the instrumentation. So when we did the deal with the builder, those houses have instrumentation for five years. Uh, we can do the moisture in there. We've got all kinds of meters in there to look at, you know, different things that are going on in that house, electrical usage, that type of stuff. So we're really able to instrumentize those houses and get a lot of scientific data out of them. And then the third part was they're actually rental houses. And that's really key because there's going to be different people living in those houses over the five years. We're really going to be able to get that different user experience in those houses. Now, they don't know when they move in. If they're moving into the 2006 house or the super house... So
1: it's sort of a placebo effect. They have no idea what they're, they're in. They're going to live their normal lifestyle, right. and you're going to provide, ultimately, all of these readings and what works best.
2: That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And we can then interview them. That's part of the deal. When they move into the rental homes, they agree to be interviewed and surveyed. So we can go in and really get the lifestyle impact as well. You know, family of five with three teenage girls is going to have a lot more energy usage, potentially, than maybe just a couple who's living in one of those houses. we'll be able to look at that data and see what the lifestyle effect was on those houses houses as well. That would be well, great.
1: Well, that is really unique. I look forward to seeing the end result and the published data somewhere in the near future, but it's going to be a few years before all this comes down. I mean, it's an extensive study.
2: That's right. Well, we've already got the cost data because that was, you know, a, a static date. Up Where front. You, that's right. Get the cost data up front. And then moving forward, we'll start doing some papers and symposiums and some presentations as we start getting data back, kind of probably after year, full year one and into year two, we'll start getting some data and we'll start putting some data out there. Can we
1: expect any of this to come down piecemeal to the building industry to say that maybe in year two we have proven this product does this. We're not through with our full research, but at least there's some things we can start
2: talking about. Absolutely. Yep. And we'll be doing that.
1: So I expect not only the next IBS, but the ones after that you'll be revealing more and more data to us and so many other people here.
2: That's right. Yeah. For people who want
1: to know more about this test, and again, I find it fascinating. I think anyone that's in the design process of home or thinking about building this year, next year, it doesn't matter if you're in the design or the concept stage. You're talking to your builder, your architect, your engineer. There are so many products that Dow has that should be incorporated. You know that, and I know that. Right. But are there some unique things that are in this study that you're saying, absolutely, these have to be a must in any new home if we're looking at energy efficiency and air water infiltration all of those elements that really rob us each month when we write those checks for energy
2: sure. well you know the one that i think is uh, you know we love to sell styrofoam and we like to sell it below grade and above grade and we think those things are great and and we promote that big time. But really, the, the one that we learn on these projects, and we've done some other projects, too, uh, that uh, point to this. Again, it's really about the air seal. That is such a huge impact. And when you get to these 2012 codes, you've got to have an incredible air exchange rate in those houses to meet that code. And it's really taking the simple products like Great Stuff and filling those gaps and cracks around windows and you know, around the baseboard and, and in the you know, roof-to-wall junctures and in the basement and the rim joists, those types of things. That is by far the bang for your buck, the best thing you can do by far none. Bar none. Simple,
1: inexpensive, user-friendly. Right. Absolutely. Save dollars every month. You whether bet. it's heating oil, whether it's electricity, it doesn't matter. Put money back in your That's pocket. Right. Where do folks go to find out more about this study and all the Dow products?
2: Yeah, you know, the Dow website, dowbuildingsolutions.com. We'll have that out there, and um, and that would be your best... And most effective way to get that information. DowBuildingSolutions.com. It's a website you need to remember. Jot it down. You'll
1: find it on my website at KenTheContractor.com. Anyway, DowBuildingSolutions.com for everything we've talked about today and the hundreds of other products that you'll find the different uses for those that Dow produces. We've been speaking with Jim Mori, and we're pleased that you could be with us today. I look forward to the follow-up and the data, both by email and fu- uh, future interviews, on this teeth study, which is the 12 energy efficient. Best homes. That's great. Very unique. Thanks for being here. Thank
0: you, Ken. We appreciate it. That wraps up this week's edition of One on One with Ken the Contractor, as Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and save you money. Now, we'll be
1: talking about this on a follow-up on this program as we move through the years, because this is, as I said in talking to Jim, one of the most fascinating energy efficiency studies I've seen in my entire career and I know this probably doesn't thrill as many of you as it does me, but it will ultimately based on the research that comes out of this and we've already presented some data from Dow on how little you you need to spend to make your home so much more energy efficient sometimes it's nothing more than filling those cracks and openings around pipes and windows and doors with expandable foam or caulking so that's what this study will reveal to us we'll end up with a lot of detail that lets us take steps in our home on doing things for a few dollars, mid-range dollars, and a lot of dollars at some point.
0: Don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at KenAnswers. If you have a question for Ken, give us a call, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975, or email us at KenTheContractor.com. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jabir Long with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Not too late to get a call or question into Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And in our green building segment, we're going to talk about something that has become more and more popular around the country. And it's not something that just builders are aware of anymore, Ken. They're called permeable pavers.
1: Yeah, we're not just going to talk about permeable pavers, but several other things that are in the same family as permeable pavers. And we've seen trends in landscaping in recent years move more and more to hardscaping and away from wood and away from earth and berms into stone and other materials. Coupled with that has to do with the patios that we're putting outside our home and our sidewalks. We're not pouring as much solid concrete or putting asphalt down in driveways like we did years ago. And it's in part because of our environment, because of regulations, and in some cases, and we're going to chat about that in just a moment, even some tax consideration. But permeable pavers... ...clearly are a product that help us eliminate runoff and eliminate water pollution downstream. It also does an awful lot for your own yard in terms of allowing water to soak back into the ground... ...versus running off into the road or into a ditch. And then here you are trying to irrigate the areas around that. There's so many products available in the market today... But they're quite easy to do, and that's the other advantage of a permeable paver. For so many of us that like doing work around our home, this takes no special skill or training or engineering degree. It's quite simple in terms of preparing the base, putting the base stone down, putting the pavers in place, leaving the joints between them so that rainwater and runoff can get in and work its way through the stone and perk back into the ground. Very easy for you to do, and it leaves you a lot of flexibility, whether you have a straight area, one that's linear, one that's square, one that is round. Very easy for you to work with. And you have dozens, if not hundreds, of products available to install that allow water to perk back in the ground. So if you have any kind of a plan this spring that involves a patio, driveway, sidewalk, I want you to think a little bit about permeable paver. If you're saying, I really don't want something that's somewhat temporary, I want to tell you, in most of the country, Now you're going to find products, one, for example, called porous concrete. It's like a sponge. The water flows right through the concrete for your driveway and sidewalk. Porous asphalt has been around for a long period of time, especially in coastal regions that allows water also to pour through the asphalt, soak back in the ground and yet it's built on a stable base. And then there are other products like Turf Block that actually allow stable areas for you to park on, but yet grass grows up between it. If you park on a grassy area long term, you know they're ruts, you have holes. But Turf Block goes down in place of that, the grass grows up between it, the, the openings, you cut it with your lawnmower, and you park your car, your truck over the top, and it remains stable. So we have a lot of options to work with around our home. That's today's green building. But let's talk a little bit about some of the tax side of this.
0: Yeah, and uh, very quickly, uh, it's uh, been an issue in the state of Maryland. Uh, They've got something called the impervious surface tax, because in Maryland, one of the big resources is the Chesapeake Bay, i.e. rainfalls. It comes down, runs off paved surfaces, and then becomes runoff, which causes problems in the Chesapeake Bay. They're trying to find some ways to raise money. And now, they are getting ready to invoke what's called, in Maryland, it's been dubbed the rain tax. And uh, this tax would be for nonprofit organizations, even for uh, individuals. So those folks who have homes with driveways, uh, you could end up paying anywhere between 48 to $144 a year, depending on the driveway size. You've got to pay $72 for every 1,050 square feet of hard surface. On businesses, private schools, and nonprofits, and uh, among those in a story quoted that I saw this week uh, was the director of Catholic charities. With all their churches and buildings, that, they could end up having to pay five thousand dollars a year.
1: Wow, that is huge. I mean, government's looking for a way to make things better, obviously, but they're trying to find the fees to do it with. And I think also they're trying to encourage us to look at some of these green building options that we have. Of course, you mentioned the Chesapeake Bay. We've got numerous affiliates in, in Pennsylvania and Virginia, and that's all part of the watershed in the Chesapeake Bay. So for those of you that have us tuned in, you might want to take heart when it comes time to deal with those patio, driveway, and sidewalk projects and think about some of the alternative materials because there may be a tax coming to you soon.
0: Well, this is also the time of year when things are warming up, and if we've got time, let's uh, deal with Shannon's email from Greenville, South Carolina. There's a a lot of you are putting in place different types of water in your backyard. And his question, can is it deals with power problems involving a landscape pond?
1: It is. And this can be complicated to resolve, a problem that's quite simple. But uh, Shannon lives in the Greenville area, and he says he's got a small water garden. He said it has a third-horsepower submersible water pump. Now, this past week, it stopped working. He said he checked the breaker and the GFI and found that it was tripped. He reset, and the pump ran for a moment and tripped again. He said, "Then I plugged the pump into another outlet inside, which is not GFI protected, and it ran fine." Said, "If it's not a GFI outlet, I don't have an issue with it running." Said, "Now I know it should be, and I'm glad you paid attention to this, Shannon. That it should be on a GFI, a ground fault interrupter circuit, a protected device that keeps you from getting electrocuted." Said, "But you took the pump out of the water, you were preparing to take it to the repair shop, and thought it would uh, you try it one more time." You plugged it into the GFI for about two minutes and it didn't trip the same GFI circuit. Now you're scratching your head and you're pulling your hair saying, what's wrong with this scenario? You're saying, I'm really puzzled. Do I have an electrical problem or do I have a pump problem? Well, I will tell you with any pump, and I have experienced this myself, with any submersible pump, there are a series of seals around those. And if the seals go bad on the pump, it doesn't mean that the motor is bad. But if the seals go bad or a bolt or a screw is loose to the point that water, even a drop, can get inside the housing on those pumps, it's going to trip that GFI breaker. And that may well be the reason. I discovered this in one of my own issues. I discovered this also is that when it was dry, it worked just fine. But in the water, it did not. And so most of you that have submersible pumps, if you're dealing with this at home, you've got fish ponds, and I've talked to some others that have had similar situations and frankly, your comments to me helped me resolve my own problem. But you've had similar situations. You can have that pump rebuilt. You don't need to go spend five hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever, when you may only need a gasket. I also want to encourage you, Shannon, to pull when you pull that pump out, to check the bolts, the nuts and bolts and the fittings on that to be sure they're tight. Pump sits underwater for a long period of time. It may run twenty four hours a day. There may be a slight amount of vibration to it, something coming loose, it can be that simple. If it doesn't work, you're going to need to throw it away or consider having it rebuilt if it's a very pricey pump. Whatever you do, don't operate a pump that's not tied into a GFI-protected circuit. We don't want anybody harmed by electricity. We want you to stay safe.
0: I was talking with somebody who uh, has a great deal of knowledge involving water gardens and ponds uh, this week, and they are really the difference between having something that's very attractive, where you don't have to worry about mosquitoes, the whole thing is just water movement.
1: Keep the water moving. It keeps it from becoming stagnant. You're not breeding mosquitoes, as you said, and it doesn't turn green and slimy.
0: I'll tell you, the the other dramatic improvement I've seen uh, in the last year or so is the use of all the natural stone that people are using. You look at some of these water gardens and ponds that people are doing, they really are spectacular looking.
1: Oh, they are, and they can be, and they don't have to be expensive for an awful lot of you. You live in an area where you have a lot of natural stone, whether it's river rock, or you've got boulders coming out of mountainsides that are accessible. I mean, pieces you can put in the back of a pickup truck with permission, but you live in natural areas where you can build these features in your backyard, front yard, wherever you want, save a lot of money. We're seeing more and more water gardens, uh, fish ponds, and water features in
0: and around our homes today. It's comforting. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at KenTheContractor.com or 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.